Amen. If you would, please turn in your Bible to the Psalms, Psalm 22, beginning on page 539 at the bottom. Psalm number 22, page 539 in the Pew Bible. Martin Luther called the Psalms a Bible in miniature, a Bible in miniature. Like so many other theologians, he had come to realize that the whole theology of the Old Testament is represented in the book of Psalms. And because the Psalms were not written just at one point in history, they can reflect the different periods of Israel's experience. So we have Psalms that go back to Moses, as well as Psalms that were written hundreds of years later during the exile. Taken as a whole, then, the Psalms really are a miniature Bible, a musical companion to the rest of Scripture. Not only that, but the Psalms do all this theology while remaining outstanding poetry and beautiful art. They record God's mighty deeds and they reflect on God's awesome character, but they always do it in a poetic and personal manner. You see, the Psalms are not just a collection about God's greatness. They are that, of course. But they are also a set of reflections on what it means to be a believer in relationship with that great God. They are our response, our response to who God is and what he has done for us. This means you can open the Psalms and find the richest treasures of reflection on God's person, and at the same time, find the deepest reflections on what it means for us to trust God and to live in relationship with God. There are so many examples of this, but let me just fly you over one psalm very quickly. We probably all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23 gives us one of the deepest looks into God's nature. He is shepherd and all that comes with that as you go through that memorable psalm. But there is also there an overwhelming abundance of truth, not just about his character, but about what he does for his people. And yet at the same time, it's also one of the most insightful passages of scripture on what it feels like to be in relationship with God from our side as God's lambs. As we read or recite Psalm 23, it feels equally theological and personal. It is deep thinking on God and deep feeling on what it means to walk with him in real life. And this is why why the church from the very start has treasured the Psalms, especially in worship, Because no other source can go so deep into God's heart and so deep into my own heart. It's probably for this reason that many of us read the Psalms all year round, even when we're reading another book of the Bible alongside it. Once you become a mature believer, the Psalms are never very far out of your reach. This is also why we as a church 
never have a Sunday, not a single one, without psalms being used repeatedly in worship. If you think about it, it is the only book of the Bible we use every single week without fail. Alongside all this majestic theology and penetrating reflection, there is also one more thing, a third thing, and it is glorious, glorious prophecy. Some of the greatest prophecies about Jesus are in this songbook. Peter reminds us in the book of Acts that David was a prophet. We often don't think of him that way, but Peter tells us he was. And so it shouldn't surprise us that his songs, while talking of God and Christ and of our lives and hearts, are also prophecies of what will come. Tonight, we've come, in my opinion, to one of the two greatest prophetic psalms in the Psalter, a psalm that is incredibly prophetic, theological, and personal. Because it's so rich and because it's so important to our faith, tonight we'll only consider the first verse of this prophetic song, verses 1 through 21 in your text. So with that introduction, would you please stand as we read those verses. Psalm 22, the first song, the lament, verses 1 through 21. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, these words were precious when David wrote them. But how much more precious are they to us now who know them to be the words of Christ upon the cross? And so strengthen our hearts and minds to receive this witness and do your work amongst us. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 22 has been called by Christians of the past, the fifth gospel, the fifth gospel. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Psalm 22. Now that might sound strange or like an exaggeration, and it probably is a bit of an exaggeration, but there's a reason for it. Here's why. Psalm 22 is the only account we have of what the crucifixion meant to Jesus as he underwent it. Psalm 22 is God's appointed tour guide to the crucifixion. When someone is crucified, breathing and speaking are incredibly difficult. You have to push yourself up by your nailed wrists and feet in order to breathe and to speak. Jesus had already been brutally beaten His body is failing him, so words from the cross are costly, painful. When Jesus is first crucified, and then in sort of the lead up to the crucifixion, the Gospels tell us that most of his words were about other people or were for other people. He forgave the soldiers, the people crucifying him. He spoke briefly to the thief beside him. And he gave John the care of his mother. But then, but then, as darkness descends at noon, the sixth hour, that is at noon, as an eclipse covers the earth, his strength, understandably, begins to fail. Now the words are few. Jesus' words become short. His attention moves from the needs of others, serving others, to rather expressing his own sorrow. The three hours of darkness, noon to 3 p.m., mark the coming of the full divine wrath upon him. He's now drinking the worst part of the cup of God's wrath. He cannot narrate this. He cannot preach this. He cannot explain to them what is happening So he cries out with Psalm 21, verse 1, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this time of greatest agony, as darkness covers the earth, Jesus chose this psalm to narrate to us what was happening to him and in him. He couldn't recite the whole psalm. He couldn't. His body would not allow that. So he did a very Jewish thing. He cited the first verse 
as a way of claiming the whole psalm to himself. Much as today, much as today, I might say to you, the Lord is my shepherd, and you would know that I was referring to the whole of Psalm 23. So if you want to know, if you want to know what this really felt like, what it really meant to him, you need the fifth gospel. You need Psalm 22. And so each gospel writer, Matthew and Mark and the rest, they all go to Psalm 22, and they then use Psalm 22 to structure what happened that day. From our reading earlier, you heard it in Matthew's account, didn't you? They cast lots for my clothing. They mocked him using the very words of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 isn't just a prophecy of what would happen to Jesus one day. It is also Jesus' own account of his crucifixion. It is Jesus' chosen instrument for us to understand his experience. No amount of gore, no film dripping with blood can give proper voice to Jesus' agony. Only Psalm 22. Sure, Hollywood, Hollywood can try to capture the horror of crucifixion, but such a film would really miss the point the real torture of the cross was internal, spiritual, theological. Only on this sacred ground, only in Psalm 22, can we begin to come to grips with what it meant to him. Let's look then at his agony and victory in his own chosen words. Tonight we'll consider the first half of Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21 which is a lament, a cry of agony. This lament in English and Hebrew, and you can even see this a little bit in the Pew Bible and the way it's broken down, this lament, these 21 verses are broken into two clear sections. In verses 1 through 11, the agony of alienation, the agony of alienation. And then in verses 12 through 21, the agony of execution. So first notice with me the agony of alienation in verses 1 through 11. In these verses, David describes a time in his life when he felt as if God had abandoned him. The mood of the verses is captured so powerfully in the very first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from Yeshua me or Jesusing me, literally in Hebrew, from the words of my groaning or better yet, as the King James has it, from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. As I read that, did you catch the words, the agonies of alienation? David says, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Why don't you hear me by day or by night? Now, David is a man after God's own heart. His relationship with God has always been intense, vivid, unique, poetic, emotional. But it has been, for that very reason, also covenantal and theological. God has made promises to David. God has repeatedly promised not to forsake David. 
and to build his dynasty forever. And David has written so many psalms, hasn't he, about these promises. Maybe you recognize some of these psalms. Psalm 27, David writes, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And how about Psalm 37? I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. These are emotional words, poetic words, but don't underestimate them. They are profoundly theological, covenantal words. This is not, you see, just an emotional crisis. It is a crisis of faith. It is a full-blown conflict between what David believes and what David experiences. He knows what the Bible says, like so many of us, but it doesn't seem to fit with what he is living. Now, let me ask you, does that sound familiar at all? If it does not, just wait a while. Because this crisis, this conflict between experience and faith comes into the life of every believer. In this crisis, in this deeply emotional and profoundly theological crisis, David chooses, you'll notice, to be direct with the Lord. Almost, almost to the point of accusation. He asks why God has forsaken him. Now, forsake, that word there, is a deep Bible word. It is a word close, very close to our word, apostasy. To fall away from something. Deuteronomy uses this word to warn Israel that if they forsake the Lord, he will discipline them. So David is rather bold here, isn't he? David has not apostatized from his covenant with God, but he feels that God has apostatized from him. My guess is that most of us would find it difficult to be that direct with God in prayer, but we need to be careful because this is God's word. The Psalms constantly remind us that we can and actually we must learn to be direct with God, to pour out our true self to him. Respectful, yes, but also direct, honest with him. Yes, there is a place for formal prayer, but there's also a place for prayer like this. God is moving you this way, I think, especially in private prayer. Some of us are trying in our private prayer life, trying to remain respectfully distant from our God. Well, maybe this psalm can help. David can be this way. David can be this bold, this real, if I could use a modern term, because he knows that God is not threatened by his directness. But he also has another motivation, I think. He's so direct because he knows, in this case at least, that he is really innocent. In other Psalms of Lament, we have a number of them in the Psalter, Psalms just like this one overall, you will often have a section where David admits that he is a sinner, where he acknowledges that he is of himself unworthy to be delivered. 
But here in Psalm 22, David is saying in clear terms, I am innocent. There's no room for repentance in this specific case. David is acutely aware that on this occasion, he is suffering innocently. The Apostle Peter reminds us that when we suffer innocently, it is a powerful experience that brings glory to God. David is aware of that, I think, here. In fact, the suffering he experiences here sounds a lot like Job, doesn't it? There's here a boldness, a sort of directness that comes and can only come out of innocence and a clear conscience. And that, you see, must have been part of why Jesus chose it to narrate his own suffering with this particular psalm. He's reminding his disciples, he's reminding Mary that the cross is a punishment he does not deserve. In the words of Isaiah, we thought him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This psalm then is the bold cry of an innocent voice. Not only does David feel forsaken, but he also goes on to say where he feels that reality most powerfully. And it really shouldn't surprise us. It's in his prayer life, isn't it? He writes, why have you forsaken me? And then to explain, to elaborate, he says, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my roaring, I cry day and night, but nothing David is crying out in agony, but feels only alienation. Here we need to think of Job's words. For my sighing comes instead of bread, he said, and my groanings are poured out like water. Or think of Hebrews chapter 5. The author of Hebrews writes, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. In the most intimate part of our faith, which is our prayer life, it's possible at times to feel as if heaven has been closed off. Now that is agony. The agony here is so intense because even when your friends let you down, you always have God. You always have that relationship to run to. You always have prayer, right? But what happens when friends give you up and you run to God and it seems he too has turned away? In verses 6 through 8, we watch as all the people turn now against David. He says, I am like a worm, despised by all, mocked, like Job's unhelpful friends, the people say to him, if you are really innocent, if God loves you so much, why does your life look like this? It must be your fault. God must really hate you. Now that is tough enough to experience. That's very difficult to experience. But imagine this. That happens to you. All of that happens to you. And then you run to God in prayer and nothing Radio silence. No one picks up the phone. Now what? In verses 4 and 5, 
David works through this. You see him going back to what he knows as a believer. In 4 and 5, he goes back and says, God, I know you saved the fathers. I know what you did for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're a faithful God. This doesn't make any sense. In verses 9 through 10, he goes back to his own experience. He says, you've been my God since my mother's stomach. You've been with me the whole time. I was born into faith in you, carried by you in my mother's arms. He knows all this. He believes all this. But God is far from his cry. His roaring never seems to leave the room. Now, this is agony. This is the agony of complete rejection. Even God has turned his back on you. This is how David felt, and sometimes it's how we feel too. But please don't miss this. You and I may feel this way sometime, but it is never, ever really true. David here is using poetry. There is often in poetry an intentional exaggeration, right? By the end of the psalm, we'll see that God only felt far away. He actually heard David's cry. As we read David's story, we see the same thing. There were dark places, the valley of the shadow of death, but the shepherd was never actually absent. In David's mouth and in our mouth, Psalm 22 is always poetry. It's real, it's powerful, but it's poetic. But in Jesus' mouth, poetry becomes history. Exaggeration becomes fact. These are his chosen words as darkness covers the earth, as he chokes down the last dregs of the cup of God's endless wrath against sin. Always remember that you cannot actually escape God's presence. David here says forsaken, right? But he knew, of course, that God is technically everywhere, David reminds us in Psalm 139, even if I go to Hades, you, O Lord, are there. God's presence is everywhere. By forsaken, David doesn't mean God is actually gone. He means hell. What is hell at the end of the day? Hell isn't the absence of God. It's not. It is being forsaken by God's love. It's when darkness covers you and you exist in the unending presence of God's holy wrath. What Jesus experienced when he was forsaken on the cross and took up these words, it wasn't God's total absence. That's not what Jesus and David were crying about. Rather, it was the presence of God without love, without comfort, without prayer. David only thought for a time that this was happening to him. But Jesus actually experienced it. Here says John Calvin, our Lord truly, in some sense at least, descended into hell spiritually. Here is at least the largest part of what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. As one pastor put it, he is bearing our hell so that we can share his heaven. Was there ever any agony like unto his agony? It wasn't the nails that made him roar Psalm 22. It was the agony of alienation. It was abandonment. It was for the very first time in his earthly life, 
reaching for his father and finding nothing but anger reaching back. That's what these words mean in their fulfillment. Secondly, in verses 12 through 21 now, we have to this agony of alienation added the agony of execution. We won't read the whole section again, but notice the vivid imagery that David uses. First of all, he describes his enemies as animals. Verse 12, he says, many bulls encompass me. Verse 13, they are like a ravening and roaring lion. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Now, for those of you who are animal lovers, you know who you are. Uh, Please do not misunderstand what David is saying here. David, remember, was a shepherd. He knew how to love and care for animals, and maybe he even raised dogs. The point here is not to portray his enemies uh, literally as animals, but rather to, in a very poetic and powerful way, speak to their viciousness. David is saying that his enemies are not acting like image bearers. They have no human morality. They are just angry and hungry. Meanwhile, secondly, notice as David is completely vulnerable in all of this, defeated and exposed. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. Verse 15, my strength is dried up. In fact, it is so bad that he says in verse 15, you, God, lay me in the dust of death. I'm dying. And verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. And verse 18, they divide my garments among them. The dividing of garments is something you only do when the person is dead dying or being executed. The person doesn't need them anymore, so they can give them up. In Roman times, uh, when Jesus was crucified, the soldiers would receive the victim's belongings as loot, as compensation for their work. And because Jesus really didn't have much, his executioners decided that it wasn't worth dividing up, so they cast lots and gave the whole to one of the soldiers. But back to David for a moment. Did David write this out of his own experience, as he did with so many of the other Psalms? If so, how? David was never executed, obviously. So what is this? It's recorded for us hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born. So no one can blame the church or say that we as Christians made this up. You can find copies of it going hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. How did David write these things? I think there are two possibilities. Choose whichever one you want. They both bring glory to God and bring glory to Christ. The first is this, that David wrote this about an experience he had, probably a terrible illness. As he lay, almost dying, he notes how many people around him are anticipating his death, hungry for it. Maybe they've already begun dividing up his kingdom and his clothing, in their minds at least. Having recovered, David now writes Psalm 22, and as he does, the Spirit of God moves him to describe the whole experience in terms of an execution. In other words, David, by the Spirit, is writing 
but it's poetic exaggeration to some extent, and he knows that. Maybe later on, or even as he writes, he becomes aware that this psalm is actually a prophecy, that this exaggeration is going to be realized literally in the Messiah. The second option is much simpler. David here is simply prophesying. This is not his experience. It doesn't fit anything we know about him. Some people would say, and I I guess I lean this way a little bit, stop trying to make it fit and simply accept that the Spirit revealed this to him and that he wrote as the Spirit directed him. But here's the point, either way you want to go, and don't miss this. Whatever the circumstances of David's life, God inspired him to describe an execution, something he never experienced. And the execution, the execution he describes is the exact parallel to crucifixion. And every historian agrees that crucifixion did not exist in David's world. Verses 12 through 21, the second part of the lament, describe torture and public execution, including the piercing of hands and feet and the dividing of garments. Psalm 22, then, is one of the two greatest prophetic psalms, Psalm 110 being the other, if you're curious. And for that reason, Psalm 22 has been used by the church of Jesus as unmistakable evidence. Like Isaiah 53, there simply is no honest, straightforward explanation for this psalm that does not admit these things. Attempts to explain it away by altering a phrase here or there do not, in the end, change the overall picture. This is the lament of a tortured and dying man being publicly executed. Nothing in David's experience can account for this, and no form of death at that time in Israel can explain it. Most of you, when you walked in tonight, probably already knew that the Psalms are deeply theological and very personal. You already love those things and the things they say about God and about our lives. He's our shepherd. He's our rock. He's our shield. You've probably used the Psalms a hundred times to get through hard times, to express joy, to provoke repentance. But don't miss the third and vital use of the Psalms. It's most important use. It points us to Christ. It, like all of the Bible, is a gospel. A gospel. Good news. Now, brothers and sisters, step back with me a moment. What have we heard tonight? We've heard the roaring of a man cut off from man and God, utterly forsaken. And then we watch as he is executed graphically and publicly. What should our response to these things be? I think there are three vital applications, and please don't miss any of them tonight because I think each is absolutely essential as we walk away from this psalm. First, Psalm 22 is a liturgy for the church in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 22 is a liturgy for the church. What do I mean by that? I mean that you can and you should use it to express your grief in the worst moments of your life. 
Before Jesus was born, for hundreds of years, faithful Jews sang this psalm in worship and used it in private prayer to get through terrible times. We can and should do the same. Ed Welch, a professor of counseling at CCF, once noted that God gave us the psalms in order to, quote, help us name the silences in our hearts. The inarticulate groanings, he said, become speech, end quote. That might not make much sense to you now, but at some point in your life, you're going to be so hurt, so tired, so absolutely broken that you will find that you cannot speak to God anymore or to anyone else. You will pass into silence. You'll try to pray and nothing will come. When that happens, let the Psalms name the silences. Let the Psalms become your voice. If your experience is anything like mine and others I know of, what will happen, what will happen is that the Psalm will come out, out of your mouth, and after it comes out, all your words will follow, like the cork of a champagne bottle. We can and we should use Psalm 22. In fact, in that moment of your life, the most important word of this psalm will be for you. In your agony, the most important word will be the first word of this psalm. Eli, Eli. It means my God. Now that's not a curse word. Like when someone almost hits us in traffic on the way here. No, it's a covenant word. It's a devout word. It's a phrase that holds within it, in that one little word, the whole of God's love for us. In Old Testament language, you can translate Eli this way, I will be your God and you will be my people. In New Testament language, Eli means I will never leave you or forsake you. In the language of our hymns, it is I am his and he is mine. And in the words of the Puritans, I am my beloved's and my beloved is my own. May Psalm 22 loosen your mouth when Satan has fastened it closed. Second, and this is not a contradiction when you use it, know for certain as you're using it that you will never actually experience these verses fully as a believer. You and I get to use Psalm 22 as poetic exaggeration, and we need it. It's how we feel. It's not a lie. It's a wonderful, poetic description of how a believer feels when his or her life is being ripped to shreds. But it is not a literal, technical description for us. We always recite Psalm 22 as poetry because Jesus recited it as history. We always recite Psalm 22 as poetry because Jesus recited it as history. Many people have been martyred for Christ over the years. We have amazing stories, even ongoing today, of brothers and sisters calmly, calmly facing the reality of death for Christ. In some cases, the deaths they experienced were every bit as brutal as Jesus's physically. Peter himself was crucified. The Japanese crucified Christians at 
one point during World War II, why are so many martyrs calm in the face of death when Jesus is so agitated? Is he less faithful, less strong than the martyrs? Here's why. Because in their deaths, the martyrs had the full comfort of God's presence. That's why they had that unusual calm. While dying, they were sometimes prophetically aware that God was with them. Think of Stephen, who is in the middle of a vision of Christ in the heavens as he's being stoned. He had that vision to uphold him. What a comfort. Not one of the martyrs, not one, fulfilled Psalm 22. Only Jesus. He lets out loud cries of agony because there was for him no comfort, no help, no smile, no vision, just wrath. And so tonight, you can be completely secure in your salvation. Since God the Father did not spare his own son, will he not with him give us all things? And lastly, thirdly, and this is the most urgent of applications, so please listen, whether you're online or in person or the way the internet works now, listening to this many years later, listen carefully. If Jesus, think about it, if Jesus, the perfectly righteous Savior, could not endure the power of God's wrath against sin, what will become of you if you are outside of Christ? Do you not know what hell is? Because God gave you an eternal soul, because he shared that part of himself with you, you can't just die. Your body can, but your soul can't. God gave the gift. He breathed it out into you. And that means you will always be alive. You'll always be somewhere. Often in prayer, I ask God to let me come near the door of heaven, to thin the veil between worlds, and let me hear the music of heaven through his word and through prayer. I do this because nothing makes me happier, and I know it's true of you too. Nothing is so powerful and clarifying than to feel something, even at a distance, of heaven's solid joys and lasting treasure. I don't mean a vision or anything like that, just the tutoring of the Spirit through his means of grace. But you know, not one of us, not one of us dares ask him to bring us close to those other doors, to the doors of hell. You think life here is hell with its violence, its pollution, its endless fighting, its bickering. You can barely bear it. You cannot bear it. How then will you bear hell? If you hear Jesus screaming on the cross, how will you bear it? The worst part of hell, I think, will be knowing that you could have avoided it. If Christ does not take hell for you, then you must take it for yourself. And how will you drink the cup that choked the Lord Jesus? So repent and believe today. And then you will feel the whole psalm shift under your feet. Want to see where that happens? In Hebrew... It is the last word in verse 21. It doesn't come across in English because the English translation changed the order of the words. 
But in verse 21, there is just one Hebrew word left to itself at the end of that verse, and it's the turning point of the whole psalm. Verse 21 ends in the original with one word, you saved me. You saved me. To which we might add tonight, you saved me, even me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that you have given this psalm to us for our comfort and encouragement. And maybe it used in the life of your people for their good. But how we rejoice that it is not ours to own, for it belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled it in its entirety. How we give you thanks that this will never be true of us. And how we give thanks that you made it true for him. Father, receive now our worship and our praise. Even now as we turn in our hymnals to sing of him, cause us, each one of us, to know what he absorbed on our behalf. Fill us with that joy and that peace, we pray. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we close our time of